You're listening to a podcast by Mission Field USA, a church planting initiative of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. For more information and resources, visit lcms.org slash church planting. Mission Field USA listeners, and welcome to our latest installment of our Mission Field USA podcast. This is Steve Shave, Director of LCMS Church Planting, and with me as always is my partner, Reverend Mark Larson. Hello, Mark. Good day, Steve. And we are excited uh, for our next installment on what can be replicated and different models for church planting that are sustainable and allow for multiplication. And we're excited to have with us, especially today, our guest, Reverend Jeffrey Robinson. Hello, Pastor Robinson. Hello. And Pastor Robinson serves as the Executive Counselor for Outreach with the Indiana District. And we're excited to hear about the work that he has going on. And also, I understand you're working on your PhD. Is that correct? Well, I uh, turned in the last rewrite, and I'm waiting at this point. You are correct. Hopefully, I will graduate (laughs) this year. Well, the reason I bring it up is I think Mark would be very interested in your topic. Can you tell us a little bit more about your dissertation? Well, what I did is I looked at three uh, districts, the Indiana District, Central Illinois District, and the South Wisconsin District, and my reasoning for that was these are all similar type districts as far as makeup of rural versus uh, uh, suburban and, and urban congregations. And also it's a Midwestern uh, uh, mindset that I think they all exhibit. And I looked at those congregations, which over a 10-year period showed an average annual attendance increase. Um, so after using the statistics of Synod and finding out which ones of those congregations would qualify, I then uh, surveyed the pastor and a lay leader. Uh, usually it was the uh, chairman or president of the congregation and asked them two questions. Um, one was, what are the top four things that you think in- enabled your congregation to show this average annual attendance increase? And two, what were the four top reasons that you think hindered the average annual attendance increase? Now, mind you, all these parishes did qualify, so they all did actually grow an average annual attendance increase. Uh, And so then I um, uh, analyzed the uh, qualitative responses. It's a mixed method study because the quantitative part I got from the Senate as far as the statistics are concerned, and then the qualitative um, I analyzed and uh, came up with um, uh, things that I think uh, I can recommend uh, to, um, to help pastors and congregations understand what are really important as far as uh, uh, growth is concerned. Um, now, the one thing I would say that is always taken for granted, and it was in my study as well, is that the Holy Spirit will work uh, growth when and where he will and those who hear the gospel. So we did not uh, try to quantify um, the, uh, the the preaching and teaching. It was assumed that uh, law and gospel was being rightly divided and, and uh, that the doctrine that was taught was uh, Lutheran doctrine. 
Fair enough. And we will definitely have to have you back on when all this is finished up and wrapped up and love to hear your your insights on that. And we're also very excited to talk to you today about replicable models. And that might actually start throwing people off from the beginning because one of the things that we've tried to concentrate on, especially with our own resources through Mission Field USA, is kind of the one biblical model of what is the church and how the church's DNA itself incorporates her mission. But on the other hand, uh, we realize that there are different ways to organize and do the administrative tasks and so forth. So there are different models in terms of how this can be accomplished. So we very much tried to identify, and actually Pastor Robinson was part of our big kind of summit that we put together of church planter uh, experts uh, to talk about a framework that would be flexible so that it would, you know, be applicable to just about anywhere. But at the same time, because it's one national uh, e-learning and resource that can be put out there, it had to be somewhat of a one-size-fits-all. But on the other hand, we realized we needed something that could be replicable. It couldn't be just the exception. It couldn't be, well, here's a great story of this $25 million project with 20 acres of land and everything went fabulous and no one else would probably be able to accomplish this so we realized that uh, not only did it have to be applicable that you could take off and run with it but that it had to be something that wasn't just uh, an exception but something that was more of the norm so to get us started just to talk about what what does it mean when we say the model for a new start and one of the things that we've tried to include in the discussion is just the basic definition of a new start so that it takes away some of the guesswork, it gets rid of some of the fear uh, of wanting to go about this endeavor of a, a new mission. But there's there's three main components, and it is, number one, that you are intentionally organizing and gathering. So there's that intentionality of an organized gathering. Number two, that you are coming together regularly on a regular basis for worship or Bible study. And then number three is that it is intended to grow into a member LCMS congregation. So with that said, we think that that's a good enough definition that people can wrap their minds around that. And then it does also make it seem more, I don't know how else to say it, but doable, that you can have a new start with some basic principles behind you. But there are various ways to go about that new start, and that's what we're excited to talk to Reverend Robinson about and I might just kind of do a little bit of a rapid fire with you, <laughs> Pastor Robinson. If okay. It's okay. Sure. So, yeah. so for example, um, one of the models that you've brought up is the parachute in model. Why don't you talk a little bit about that for us? Well, I didn't actually come up with that name. One of my missionaries uh, that works uh, with the district uh, came up with that because it's, he said it feels like I'm just been parachuted into a community. But essentially, what that is is where a, a man goes into a community, there is no LCMS church, and you start from scratch. Um, and uh, the resourcing for that can come in various ways. That's the, the part that can be uh, adjusted. In the, in the case of uh, one we're hoping to get up soon, uh, we call it Outreach Kentucky. We want to go into Richmond, Kentucky, where there's never been an LCMS church that's been established. Um, and we're fundraising at this point. Uh, once we get us enough funding, we will send a missionary in. Um, 
and ask him to begin with Bible study. Uh, We want him to gather 30 people in that first year. And by the second year, he needs to replicate that number. So part of what he's going to be teaching is that, you know, uh, they're all royal priesthood of believers, and, and he needs to help them understand what the priesthood does, and that's namely uh, share the Word of God with people, invite people, and encourage them to become part of the, the congregation that we hope to, to uh, establish. And then uh, in our model at this point, what we're hoping is that the, after a third year of support, the man will, and the congregation will be independent. But essentially, the parachute-in model means that you're starting from scratch where there's never been an LCMS church. Roger. So that really does sound like the mission field. You know, that's some serious plowing that will be going on since there's been no previous labor done in the field. So uh, it sounds a bit challenging, but certainly, as you said, uh, the Holy Spirit will work uh, as as the Holy Spirit wills. Any other thoughts in terms of the challenges or opportunities with that model? Well, I think that in general, what I would say with any uh, outreach start from from a district executive standpoint, the, the one limiting factor is always money. Hmm. Um, if I had plenty of money coming into the district, there would be a lot more starts going on in the Indiana district uh, at this point. But um, that's always the limiting factor. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's just a, in part a matter of uh, people understanding uh, and I'm a great believer in the priesthood of all believers, uh, that the, the priesthood needs to understand that a great deal of uh, the work of a new start is going to rest upon them mm-hmm. with their prayers, with their financial resources, and actually with um, them reaching out. Because if you think about it, a pastor can only do so much, but if you get 30 people, let's say, in the example I gave you, at the, you know, after he's catechized these people, um, they will multiply the uh, the uh, number of people that they know that they're in relationships with that they can reach out to, uh, and that and it begins to go up exponentially as you gain numbers and people. Okay, great. And then, kind of sounds like the almost uh, opposite of that would be another method um, model that's been spoken of, and that is a collaboration of circuits. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about that one? Well, and uh, I should point out that all these models we're talking about we're actually doing here in the Indiana District. Um, in this model, uh, the two circuits came together and began talking to me about starting another mission, and they uh, began to plow the ground um, for uh, our mission actually in Scottsburg, Indiana. And so they've been supporting the mission. They've asked for very little uh, funding from the from the district. Uh, they sought out my advice in how to go about it. Uh, we have uh, uh, a pastor who's working in this uh, mission at this point. Um, and uh, so, you know, the ownership is with the, the district, uh, those two circuits that are in that part of the, uh, of the uh, district. Um, and it, it's a great model in that any circuit uh, or uh, fellow, you know, circuit next to them could could work together to to be able to do this. 
Yeah, so it sounds like you have a lot more capacity to bring to bear than the standalone. So I guess that would probably be one of the major advantages, would you say? That and I think that, you know, you know when you're going into a community where there's no LCMS church, it may be a number of miles before you can get to the next parish, um, uh, you know, where there is an LCMS pastor. So in, in this particular situation, because the circuits are coming together to already support the guy, the missionary already has built-in support. Um, and it's not just the district executive somewhere off. Gotcha. And then also uh, the traditional, what we typically consider traditional anyways, approach to doing church planning is the mother-daughter model. Can you talk about that one? Well, and historically that's how most of our new starts have occurred in the uh, in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Um, uh, it's where a mother congregation will, will uh, give uh, financial support, actually will call the pastor in some cases and, and uh, you know, then deploy him to wherever the, the preaching station is, the, the, the mission start. Um, in other cases, it has been like, like for example, Historic St. Paul's, where I'm a member across from the district office here, used to grow to about 1,000 members, and then they would send 200 members off to start another congregation. So it can be that form as well. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, while I've got it down as a satellite start, and it is because of what a satellite start is, the reality is that the cornerstone in Fisher's is a is a model like that in that uh, they started out with I believe about 300 people from the mother parish that went to help start the new location. Uh, so the advantage then is that you already have a core group of people who are committed to to uh, seeing a new congregation established, and you go with the blessing of the mother congregation who has a relationship and will continue to help. Yeah, certainly has its strengths. I know in my own situation. It was a mother-daughter congregation working with the district and the synod to to do this. So it was a great collaboration, but it was so beneficial to have the mother congregation take so much of the administrative burden, you know, in terms of uh, the finance, uh, keeping track of things, you know, all, all the administrative pieces of it were really helped immensely by having a mother congregation before we, you know, became official and put people in place to to take care of those different things. But the other part of it was, as you said, it was kind of built into our structure then to replicate. The mother congregation, uh, you know, was historically known for being about missions and new starts. And so when the daughter congregation was started, it was always uh, intended that if it did grow to a certain size and the need was there, that we also then, it would be a replication, kind of that idea Mm -hmm. of multiplying churches. So it was always kind of part of the the DNA, and I think when you have that kind of birthing of mother, mother daughter, that's definitely an, an advantage. So you did touch on the satellite model, uh, and you'd mentioned Cornerstone. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I know in some areas of our synod, satellite model is a little bit controversial, um, and yet as I look at it as a, a theologian and, and also a mission executive, I don't. I don't see uh, it being inimical to um, uh, correct teaching of the doctrine that we believe in or, or the practice of it. The 
what happens with a satellite model is that the this it's it's another location uh, where uh, worship is going on from a from a mother church, um, and hence the idea of a satellite. Uh, the advantages in a satellite model are that you already have um, a congregation which is doing well and leadership um, that's doing well in that they're able to do this. And, and so the DNA, as you used it earlier, is, is basically replicated at that place of something that's already uh, doing well. Um, the other advantage that I see uh, primarily is that when you're trying to buy property um, in an expensive area, the, the wealth of the mother church is a large help to the uh, purchase of land and facility uh, for the satellite. So you don't have the burden of trying to pay off bills because you have the, the larger church enabling you to do that. Um, the, the, the one question I have in mind with the, the various satellite starts that I'm aware of that are going on around Senate is, will these congregations remain satisfied with being a satellite of, mm. of the main church? Yeah. Because it seems to be in our Lutheran DNA that eventually we become independent yeah. congregations. So that, you know, time will tell. But uh, I think it can be a great um, model especially in areas where the cost of uh, building a new building or purchasing land can slow down mission uh, outreach. Sure, sure. And uh, yeah, I think that's a good uh, description of, I think, when you consider hiving off kind of an existing congregation, that the one thing that might be a concern later on is that, like you said, the autonomy. Because there are cases where you can have a mother and daughter congregation that are in their context, not as similar as you would think. So I, I think you're probably hitting that on the head. There's a lot of advantage, but then um, the one the one question in mind would be that kind of sense of autonomy and how do you, how do you make that work uh, going forward? That's a good one. So the next topic would be the missional community model, and can you give us a little description of that one? Well, missional community historically, as I understand it, from uh, being involved in Exponential uh, Conference uh, for a number of years, which is uh, billed as the largest gathering of uh, missionaries uh, in the United States. It, uh, the one that I went to was in Orlando, Florida. It's primarily Reformed emphasis, uh, Reformed church body, so Baptist, uh, Methodist, um, um, Church of Christ, that, that sort of uh, uh, genre of, of uh, denominations. Um, but they define missional community as uh, a group of people wanting to be disciples of Christ, and their their beginning is all missional, and, and they maintain that missional approach, but it can take many forms. Um, some start in a, in a house church kind of setting. Some move into an apartment building and try to get the community going there. It's an alternative to actually owning your own building. Hmm. And um, so the, uh, the idea is that it's more like the early church was. Um, it 
uh, doesn't have the overhead because you don't have a building that you're trying to take care of and that you don't use, you know, seven days out of the week. Um, and I think it, the appeal that I've seen with, with some is that it's, it's a more uh, younger generation that's interested in trying to, to do this, to be more authentic mm-hmm. with what early Christianity um, was about, at least their perception of it. Okay. And I, I think it does, uh, just by what you described, fit under the definition of a new start in that they are intentionally gathering uh, and they are working towards, you know, word and sacrament ministry. And then eventually, uh, if they are intending to grow into an LCMS congregation, that certainly fits with how, right. how we would define new starts. But I would, I would also add for our listeners that in the Indiana district, at least, those that have started out as missional communities are now in churches, hmm. uh, church buildings. Okay. So there, are, again, you know, as you look at these things develop, it's interesting that uh, LCMS Lutherans seem to want to have that church building. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. And I mean, I guess there are some logistical reasons and there are some theological reasons, but yeah, ultimately uh, uh, that that place where Word and Sacrament ministry can take place for sure. All right, well, I'm going to give us one more, and then we'll take a little pause. So we'll go to number six, and that's what you describe as the rebirth model. Right. Um, In our urban settings, this is where we've been seeing this model work, um, where a a parish closes down and uh, a new uh, congregation develops in the old building. The example that I have is um, Resurrection Lutheran in Louisville, Kentucky. It used to be Pilgrim Lutheran years ago, and due to various reasons, Pilgrim Lutheran uh, went out of existence. And um, actually, I was involved in part of that. There was just a, a few people left when I first came into this district 12 years ago as the mission executive, and I met with them, and they wanted to... Um, go this route with a, with a new name and a, and a new, uh, new identity. And they have done that. Hmm. Um, the advantage that I can see with this is that you don't have to buy property. You don't have to, um, build a new building. You already have all of that in place. Uh, you have to work for the new identity, uh, in that you, you know, you need to be really missional, uh, evangelism needs to go forward, um, but it also can help with any kind of uh, negative um, image mm. that was there uh, from the previous congregation because you're starting out new with a with a different image. Okay, and would you say that this is the whole package? I mean, it's basically putting together a core group and reconstituting, and a, you know, kind of the new identity or. A, is it more, would you say, I don't know what else to call it, but more on the branding side? Well, I think new identity is probably key. If you just rebrand it and you still have the same problems that you had before, that's going to become pretty obvious. Gotcha. Um, so there was work done to make sure that the previous concerns okay. uh, didn't come back into the, uh, into the parish. And in the case of Resurrection Lutheran, um, there there was a, an ethnic outreach that occurred. A Sudanese group um, took instruction 
and became Lutheran uh, and brought in, I think, uh, one Sunday, 75 members. Hmm. Uh, so th- that was pretty pretty exciting as well. Yeah, that would definitely change your identity. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. So so there's our first six out of the 12 I think we're going to cover, but I want to just pause and give uh, Mark a, a chance here. I know Mark is very active in his own district in terms of uh church planning strategies and that sort of thing. And Mark, what, what do you have to think so far? Well, maybe a question for, uh, for you is, uh, which do you think is the model that should be pursued the most often? Uh, are you asking me, Mark? Yes. Okay. I think the easiest model to pursue is the mother-daughter approach because that's what we're used to as a church body. Um, I, in my experience, I am constantly promoting evangelism and outreach, and I uh, try to let the uh, leaders at the local level tell me what kind of model they want to go with. Hmm. Because I think when it, when you get down to the, the, uh, the basics what really is going to make the difference is um, effort uh, and uh, work ethic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and and I I've seen that time and again in the research. Plus, also, um, and, and I don't want to get into my dissertation too much, but <laughs> the research that I did, um, looking at how our synod grew from. Uh, 1847 to 1970, there was a whole lot of evangelism and mission outreach going on here in the United States. A lot of effort. That's what I was thinking. I mean, just by the sheer numbers, I think you could see it being very replicable for us to have mother-daughter congregations because it is kind of vital to have, uh, you know, the mother take the daughter under her wing and and get her out of the nest and, <laughs> you know, rather than uh, kind of try to go it on your own. But also, as you said, you know, it is so revitalizing just to the mother congregations. And that, I think that helps with that mm-hmm. idea of the growth uh, for us right. as a church body, too, is uh, the, the benefits for the mother congregation, uh, the benefit for a healthy daughter congregation. And it does seem to be something that works, certainly historically speaking anyway. So makes sense. Uh, do you think there's examples, uh, or can you envision a, a situation where the mother-daughter would not be the right model, and you'd probably pursue one of the other ones? Well, I, I think where um, you're you're trying to start in a new location, you, you obviously it's it's difficult to do right. a mother-daughter. You need more than than just the mother parish that's you know 50 miles away. Hmm. And when I look back at the history of our synod, um, and, and what I did for my research is I went and checked every uh, statistical yearbook from the English language time on. I'm, I'm not that gifted in German, um, <laughs> but uh, our district office here has wonderful archives. And so I went back to 1911, I think it was. God bless you. And, mm-hmm. and um, went through every year. And what was amazing to me that I had no knowledge of was that our synod in those uh, early days uh, were they were having eight and nine hundred missionaries here in the United States, yeah. and these guys were trying to start churches in urban settings. Yep. They were trying to start churches in rural settings, as well as the suburban settings. Yep. So um, 
I think that kind of emphasis would be wonderful if we were to uh, do that again. Yeah. Uh, just think about that. Eight or nine hundred missionaries they were reporting. <laughs> First time I saw that, I thought it had to be a typo. Uh, yeah. And then when I saw just how many preaching stations, how many missionaries, it was just fantastic. Uh, the, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that was obviously more than just mother-daughter. That was a corporate right. mindset um, that, that the Synod had. And just uh, since you've seen it uh, too, Steve, uh, the... If, if my uh, figures are accurate, from uh, 1847 through 1970, the Senate grew by 203%. Yeah, and entire districts, you know, you think right. about it now, entire districts were a mission field. They were literally sending out pioneers into these frontiers. They would send missionaries with families. They would go out into the Wild West mm-hmm. of America, and they would and they would establish uh, entire districts that were considered mission districts that were uh, subsidized right. and supported by the, the LCMS at large. It was just phenomenal uh, growth right. that happened because of that kind of mission-mindedness, but yeah. And, and so, um, uh, Mark, yeah, yeah, I think there are definitely locations where you need to have more than a mother-daughter situation. Mm. But prior to being able to do that, we have to help uh, everyone understand uh, that um, God wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved, mm-hmm. and that each of us have a, a part in that. That's what I've been trying to emphasize with uh, my emphasis on the priesthood of all believers, uh, that there is no one uh, within our congregation's who are uh, not to be involved in in caring for the the lost, uh, and I guess it really boils down to: Do you love people? Yeah. Do you love people, and do you love your Lord? And this is what the Lord wants. Yeah, even in the various models we're talking about, even in the mother daughter uh, approach that we're talking about, I've seen it where it was a layperson who was in an area and said, you know, I, I'm i in this community and I realize this need. And it ended up being a mother-daughter congregation. And yet the person that kind of spearheaded it, did the initial canvassing, you know, was out there in the community and knocking on doors and all the rest, you know, was a right. strong, right. strongly catechized layperson that, you know, had that sense that you just described. So ab- absolutely fantastic. So what do you think about our next uh, next six? <laughs> Let's take a look at the ethnic outreach model. What does that mean for us? Well, um, here in, in Fort Wayne, uh, we have a church named uh, St. Augustine, which is an ethnic outreach uh, model in that St. Augustine has always reached out to African immigrants. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not opposed to having other people come in, but their primary thrust is, is African immigrants. And at one point, they had 15 different nationalities worshiping together at St. Augustine. Wow. You know, we, we have this uh, kind of idea, at least uh, many Americans do, that, that Africa's one big country. No, it's a continent, and there are lots of different uh, countries within Africa, and um so you get a, a, a plethora of different languages, uh, customs, and so forth. And I think the the wonderful thing that St. Augustine has been able to do is to incorporate people from various places in the continent of Africa, and still they are amicable and able to uh, 
to uh, uh, serve the Lord together without animosity. Uh, and I think that's a great thing. Um, so that would be one example. Um, uh, the, uh, the challenge with an uh, ethnic ministry model like we're talking about is uh, twofold. One, um, the first-generation immigrants are um, not real familiar with uh, the uh, customs of our society, and it can take uh, interesting turns. So as a mission exec, I've helped them out with various things. But the second thing that, that is an issue for them is by the time their children or they have grandchildren who have been here in this country, they, um, the, the children and grandchildren are much more in tune to being U.S. citizens than they are with wherever their parents came from. So you can see a little bit of stress that happens because of that. So the further along, you know, the, the, the congregation gets, the more, if I can use this term, uh, Americanized it gets. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah. And I mean, if nothing else, it, it helps to recognize the huge demographic shift that's happening in the United States right. and the, the reason why we need to see this as being uh, God at work and that realizing uh, from what I've heard, statistically speaking, by the year 2050, we will not have a majority ethnic group in the United States. And we as a church should always reflect uh, the community that's that's around us. So that that is good to, to hear that uh, we, we recognize that and we understand that God has called us into that multi-ethnic church that kind of pictures Revelation 7. Right. Well, the, the other challenge, I should say, too, is trying to get uh, the, uh, the church leaders. And in the case of St. Augustine, they're, they're uh, worshiping in conjunction with Holy Cross. They, they have their separate worship. But, um, and, and the other one that I've got down here, that uh, our Hispanic outreach, uh, we have similar situations. Um, what I see, what I envision is an Acts 2 church where all different nationalities come together and the leaders come from um, all different nationalities as well. But getting there is sometimes the, the difficulty in our churches. Uh, in other words, uh, it is my hope that uh, a person who um, was born in uh, Ethiopia, for example, uh, could be pastor of uh, an Anglo group. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, language has got to be uh, spoken well enough. If you're speaking to English-speaking people, you have to be able to handle English pretty well. Mm -hmm. But the ethnicity of a person really shouldn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter to God. shouldn't matter to us either. And so uh, that's, that's our goal here. Uh, and I would say that most of the pastors, if not all of the pastors in this district, understand that or are working towards that. Well, good. And I, I do agree with you, too, that when you get to that 1.5 second generation, that's probably where you can see that more of the melding of the multi-ethnic church with the, you know, uh, immigrant children who then go to school with their friends and want to worship with their friends. And so, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a both and no doubt. All right. How about this, uh, number eight, our specialized model. Yeah, the worker priest is becoming more of a reality because we have more and more churches that are getting smaller and smaller. And uh, I personally know this model firsthand because I was a worker priest or bivocational worker for 12 years. 
Um, initially, it was seen, I think, uh, in rural communities. And in part, that was due to shrinkage of those communities. Now, I have to say in the Indiana district, the counties of Indiana and, and the ones in Kentucky that make up the Indiana district, uh, we haven't really seen that. There are very few counties that are losing numbers. Um, so we've been blessed in that sense. But our churches, we do have a probably 30 or 40 of them that are getting so small that they're not able to support a full-time worker. And that's where you need the worker priest, a, a, a man who has uh, gainful employment, not only from the parish, but also from another source. In my case, I um, didn't always plan on being a pastor, so I have lots of uh, University of Florida education prior to me coming into the ministry, and I taught college uh, for 12 years uh, on the side to be able to supplement um, uh, my salary. Uh, we do have examples of men who are doing this at this point. They, they both happen to be uh, pastors of ethnic uh, congregations. One's a Hispanic man who has opened up his own uh, yard work business, and the other man is uh, an Asian Indian man who works in the medical uh, industry, but also is serving as a pastor um, in, in on, you know, as he serves the people, the, the Tamil people. I, I guess I have an 8B for you then. Okay, sure. <laughs> so talking about smaller congregations and certainly how are they going to support the, the worker is key to that. But are you seeing in especially like an urban setting or in small town where there's multiple, multiple smaller congregations where it seems less and less likely that all of those congregations will continue to support separate church workers, do you see any movement towards merging smaller congregations together and then picking one location and then building a brand new core group and doing basically a replant. Is that also something that you're seeing kind of under this 8B? Well, I've been trying to promote that okay. uh, because we're, we're really talking about new starts. And, and, and yeah, um, th that's where we're trying to go. The difficulty whenever you try to do what we're talking about is that you have two established congregations that have uh, in many cases in, in our Senate, they're, they're fairly old. Uh, they have a long history uh, that you have to be able to merge together. And uh, that takes a lot of work. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I, my, my colleague from the Nebraska district, Rich Boring, um, gives a good illustration and analogy of what you have to do to try to gain an, a, a new start. The, the two congregations that are going to uh, in a, essence, uh, merge into one another entity has to have a honeymoon first before they get married. And I, and I like that analogy because you have to work all the stuff out yeah. uh, be, before you can actually start the new parish. Sure. Um, we're actually going through that process right now with, with two parishes in an urban setting. Okay. Um, and it's, um, it's slow going, but I think it's worthwhile um, if the goal is to to gain a sustainable congregation that will be um, able to share the gospel in new and better ways than they did, uh, you know, separately. Uh, because for me, the 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 tr 
primary reason that God has given us congregations is evangelism. Right, right. And that's got to be built into that DNA of the, the replant for sure. Right. That, very good. Um, how about number nine? You've got the preaching station model. Uh, yeah, the preaching stations. Um, because of lack of funding, I have, a, I have a number of task forces that I appoint here. My new ministry initiative task force has come up with this uh, idea, and I, and I think really it, it's not a new idea. It's an old idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, preaching stations and Bible studies have been going on for, you know, since, since the beginning of the church, really. Right. Um, and and uh, in our case, um, what we're trying to do is encourage pastors to uh, see the opportunities that are around them so that we want to have a preaching station happen in the, in the little community next to where your church is. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see this can be a benefit to the pastor. First of all, he gets out and meets other people that he doesn't know. Um, it can help his congregation begin to see, you know, there are other people that we can uh, influence positively with the Word of God. And um, it doesn't cost a lot of money to do this. Um, in fact, it shouldn't cost anything other than, than, uh, time. Um, and, uh, I, before we really began to promote this and we are in the promotion phase at this point, I, uh, you will remember, Steve, I, uh, I contacted you and said, what's the definition of a new start? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what is this thing? <laughs> so that's what we're attempting to do. Um, uh, I, I have uh, encouraged all of our uh, pastors and will continue to encourage them, as well as the lay people, to realize that we're not trying to gather Lutherans, although, you know, if Lutheran people want to come, that's fine. What we really want to do is reach out to those who know nothing of Christ. And in our district, I've looked at every county, looked at uh, uh, the percentage of unclaimed people. In other words, they're, they're not... Um, claiming a religion of any sort. Mm-hmm. And in most of our counties, the number is 50% or better. Yeah. Yeah. And I know it's a sacrifice for the pastors. And like you said, historically going back to those circuit riders and uh, sacrifices that they made for the sake of the gospel and to reach the lost. Um, but on the other hand, as you said, when you have so many souls <laughs> that are, are not connected to the, the word of God, and here you have this opportunity and it's interesting we we're talking about all these models, but I think there's some, you know, in, in some circumstances, there's multiple things that are kind of happening in terms of models. So perhaps the pastor is willing to rent out space at a hotel for a conference room to start a uh, preaching station model, and then it actually ends up becoming more of a mother-daughter congregation, and then they're able to actually call a mission developer once that right. thing gets to that mature level. So I, I realize that for the congregation, they're making some sacrifices with their pastor, uh, doing other, you know, duties uh, with their preaching station. But then at the same time, the pastor having to drive there, having to take away maybe even family time on a Sunday afternoon. Um, but what a what an amazing thing it is when God works <laughs> as he does. And then from that, uh, creates a, a new healthy congregation uh, in the end. So, um, yeah, right. definitely uh, understand that this is a historic part of who we have been 
uh, in the LCMS for sure. And then closely related to that, you have the Bible study model. And right. I'm, I'm assuming you got kind of the same situation, but would the difference also be that it might not be the pastor? What, what was your sense on that? Um, it, it might, it could be the pastor might not be. Um, uh, and if you look at the, the next model I gave you is canvassing community couple with Bible study. That's sort of the, uh, just a variance of what the Bible study. Um, I do believe that canvassing communities are still uh, a blessing. Um, we do it not in the same way that I did it when I was first out of seminary. Um, I hope that I've gotten smarter in, in, in encouraging pastors how to do this, but we, what we try to do is we connect with the leadership of the community and first of all, let them know that we want to do this and, you know, work with the, the mayor. Let's say if you're in a small community or the police chief. And then I also uh, try to encourage our, our pastors to advertise it in the local media hmm. and then uh, identify themselves with badges or whatever uh, that they use so that people who don't want to answer the door have the right not to answer the door. Right. Um, and we certainly don't want to violate any uh, deed-restricted communities or anything like that where you're not supposed to go in. Sure. But the advantage of a canvassing community is you can begin to uh, find out uh, who is going to church, who isn't. Um, you can uh, do that in various ways. Uh, I like the, uh, the door-to-door. And uh, in, in, uh, in some cases, uh, if you use a door hanger and just hang that on the door, you don't even have to knock on the door. But if people are coming out, mm-hmm. you know, they'll talk to you. Um, and so where the Bible study comes is from people who show interest there, and in many cases, uh, where you're going to be doing these uh, canvassings, you probably have a member or two who live in that community. So what we're tr- encouraging is that the member open up their house for a Bible study um, so that they uh, there's familiarity there. And the pastor can train that member uh, how to lead the Bible study mm-hmm. um, if, if he's not able to do it himself. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the notion behind that. Um, and I know that God works through uh, people who are sharing the Word of God, whether they're pastors or not. Um, we what? believe in the eff- efficacy of God's Word when it's proclaimed. <laughs> there you go. And like you said, uh, there's more familiarity and there's friendships and relationships that are already established, and uh, it's a good way to kind of build build on that community. So. That makes makes sense. I think the last one we had then, uh, our number twelve, uh, is referred to as peeling off of members. That sounds like an interesting one. Well, I kind of mentioned that before. This is what Saint Paul Lutheran used to do um, in uh, in the earlier days. I think the last time they did it was nineteen forty eight, and uh, uh, what they did was they would grow to a thousand members and then send 200 off to another location in Fort Wayne. And I believe there are five or six congregations that are established today that uh, started in that manner uh, from St. Paul. And this would be easily to replicate, uh, you know, in other places. It does um, take a lot of, uh, I think, commitment on the part of a parish. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the emphasis today seems to be we want to be the, this big mega church. Okay. Well, no, you grow to a certain size, and then you send your members 
to help start another church. Um, and uh, the advantage, I think, of that, if I can use this illustration, um, is that uh, the cells in our body are not one huge cell. We have a lot of little cells in our body because there's a lot more surface area that way. And there is a, a Methodist uh, author who wrote a book, um, and the, the title of it's not coming to my mind right now, but where he, he points out that you know churches of a certain size begin to lose that effectiveness uh, of being able to, you know, the pastor being able to know all the people mm-hmm. and have a good relationship with them. And so that book advocates starting another congregation at that point. And I think there's some, some value in that. The other thing is that um, uh, people, uh, congregations have personalities. Uh, we can argue that they don't, but I think there's a reality that they do. Uh, and so not everybody likes the same personality. And I'm not talking about the doctrine of the practice that all should be the same. But um, if you're a blue collar uh, church, primarily, uh, you are different than, than a church that is uh, primarily a, a, you know, made up of white collar members, hmm. just in, in what you prefer um, to do and, and that kind of thing. That's really what I'm talking about more. And so I think there's room for um, multiple parishes, uh, and, um, you know, yeah, more yeah. people be reached that way. Right. I think that one, again, kind of the challenge is to find those Abrahams and Sarahs who are willing to pack up and go, uh, right. to kind of make that sacrifice. You know, you get into your comfort zone, you have your pew, you know, your friends and, and you're asking them to, uh, to kind of take a leap of faith to go and to do that. But again, um, the sacrifice uh, certainly has, has great reward. What do you think, Mr. Larson? Um, I, was, I was just going to mention <laughs> that I uh, was speaking with uh, uh, someone from my congregation whose son uh, went off to be a member of a church planting team, and it was actually relocating from, I think it was Missouri, to Indiana, hmm. that... Mm-hmm. Uh, they had such commitment to this church plant that I, I guess about 30 people went and formed a new church. They moved They states? moved. They moved states. That they is old find school. jobs. Yeah. It's like uh, 19th century. That's you, old school. Yeah. It's like, you know, when moving from Europe to the United States, it reminded me of that very much. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it, that wasn't an LCMS star, but it was, uh, I thought that was very interesting. No, and I, I've considered that too, because when you think about half- Fifty-five percent of our churches are in small towns, and if it truly is like seventy-five percent of the population is in the city, how, how do you right? So how do you do that kind of remote? You know, your your base is kind of uh, rooted in in a small town. How do we do more more of that uh, church planting in the bigger metropolitan areas? It's certainly something for us to consider and, and a bit of a challenge, I would say. It was very, it was very interesting conversation. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you heard anything like that before, Pastor Robinson, or not. Uh, but uh, uh, I've not heard of anything like that in the U.S. For, you know, for yeah. 150 years. Yeah. yeah. But it, it seemed very interesting, and they went with about 30 people. And the question I didn't ask was, uh, if you send 30 people, they probably all really like and know each other really well. I wonder how hard it is for new people to break into that group. But apparently, it's working for them because they've done it before. 
Well, uh, Dr. Larson, I can tell you one of our starts, which is now an established parish, didn't do quite that, but the uh, the, the missionary when I came here was a young guy right out of seminary, and I encouraged him to not have divine service for a year. Mm-hmm. And just uh, and so there were 30 people. It was a mother-daughter start, um, and he instructed them for a year. Um, and then they did start the new congregation. They had sending from the mother parish, and, and uh, uh, they ended up going to a uh, public school building um, because uh, my, my advice to them at that point was, you want to go where there are young parents who are familiar with the place. And, and they did that for a year and a half or so. But what happened, and I suspect this would be the same thing with these people that have moved, was he... Um, inculcated in their understanding that we are going to constantly be reaching out. Um, uh, otherwise, if we don't, then we're not really being missional uh, in, in our approach. And he still does that today. The parish is to the point now where um, it's probably eight years old. Uh, they could start another parish, and he's, uh, he's thinking about that at this point, too. So he's always looking forward to where where's the next start going to be. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I think that's, you know, again, from my study of the past, I believe we had that in our church and for whatever reason, uh, in the seventies, that attitude changed. And, and if I can just use myself as an illustration, um, my older brother and I, we remember being part of, uh, a mission developing congregation in Florida. And we used to go out and knock on doors when we were young teenagers to invite people to our church. It was not threatening to us. It was fun, in fact. Yeah. But that mindset was there uh, in that congregation. Yeah, and I think you point out something also, the diversity. So a church plant that is in a certain location and maybe not everybody's from that location and you're bringing a core group uh, that's reaching out, bringing in new people. Maybe they've been waiting for a Lutheran church. Maybe they've never heard of the Lutheran church, but then you're catechizing them, you're uniting them, you're forming them into that core group. I, I think there's something very healthy about having not just people from the mother congregation, wherever they might come from, but the, the, the initial core group even has some diversity to it. Um, right. Yeah. So... In our last uh, few moments here, what else would you consider to be kind of the key points that might actually span all these different models, but some key points to consider with any of these models, Pastor Robinson? Well, uh, as always, uh, I would say that we, whenever you're trying to start a new congregation, you need to be in prayer, asking God's guidance. Uh, you need to um, be dedicated and committed to uh, standing firm in God's Word, that proper uh, preaching and teaching would go on, um, and um, realize that God will open doors when He does. Uh, don't get uh, uh, discouraged, uh, because sometimes it takes some time. Uh, God is in control, not us. Hmm. But the, the uh, persistence, I think, the, I, I said earlier, work ethic is kind of maybe I meant persistence, but just realizing that new starts um, have never been really easy. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, if we go back to the early church, they were still willing to, to speak and say whatever needed to be said, even though 
in those early days, uh, they could have died for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not to that point here, um, and God uh, willing, we will never get to that point. But there are lots of people who don't know Christ, and if we don't tell them about him, who will? Right. And, and furthermore, uh, if you think about all those people, if they die without faith, we know where they're going to end up. Right. And we also know that's not God's will. Um, he, he tells us that he wants all people to come to the knowledge of truth and be saved. We believe in universal grace, uh, as Lutherans. And so that would be the thrust that I would leave with people is, uh, look at those people around you and know that Christ loves them and have compassion on them yourself. Amen. So those are some great words of wisdom to end on. And, uh, again, I just want to thank, uh, Dr. Larson for being with me here today. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. And also, especially thank you to the soon-to-be, we hope, Dr. Robinson <laughs> for your years of experience and sharing with us uh, some great models and tips uh, for our mission developers and from our lay people alike on how to uh, go about this amazing, awesome, fantastic work of planting new fields. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. We hope to hear back from you soon. Thanks for listening to the Mission Field USA podcast for church planting. Visit lcms.org slash church planting for other resources and information to share your ideas and to contact us. The Mission Field USA podcast is a production of the Office of National Mission of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod in partnership with KFUO Radio. The Lord be with you.